Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is May 5th, 2014, and this is episode 1340 of the Survival Podcast, and it's Monday. Monday is time for the Listener Feedback Show, with Listener Feedback for 5514. And it is the first show in, well, I don't know how many total days, but eight days, eight work days, eight days there would normally be a show. There was no show. I think this is the very first time I've taken an actual long-term vacation and did not put any additional shows up in advance before I left. With everything we've had going on in the past couple months, it was just not possible. And then to compound things, do you know what happened to me, guys? Do you know what happened when I got to Florida, I borrowed Joe's uh, MacBook because Macintoshes do not crash. They never go bad on you. They never fail. They're, you know, indestructible, bulletproof machines. And I got there, and that night I opened up the uh, MacBook and I turned it on, and guess what? It wouldn't load. Kept running some weird scan and wouldn't load, and uh, it probably needs the hard drive replaced in it. So I'm on the hook to Joe for a hard drive. So I spent my entire vacation with only my uh, my wife's uh, iPad uh, to deal with emails. I'm telling you this for a reason. The reason is, if you have not heard back from me in an email that you've sent me by now, assume that I didn't get it. It got mass deleted or something like that. Um, I was able to do absolutely no real work whatsoever while I was on vacation. If the the uh, MacBook hadn't shit the bed, I would have been able to do work. So maybe it's karmic in a positive way that it went down on me, and I wasn't able to do any work, and I was actually forced into actually taking a real vacation. Ironically, this is the second time that I went to Sanibel, Florida with my wife for a vacation, planned on doing some work while I was there, and had a computer fail. So maybe when I take vacation, I'm just supposed to take vacation, Hard to do for a workaholic like me, but that's probably more than you wanted to know. The takeaway from that, though, again, though, is if you've emailed me and you've not heard back by now, you're not going to hear back, and you need to email me again. Formula to email me, question for Jack, comment for Jack, subject for Jack, anything like that for a episode-specific uh, email like today's show. Otherwise, just email me and uh, send that email to jack at the survivalpodcast.com. As always, with the sheer volume of email that I receive on a daily basis, I highly, highly, highly recommend that you make your point in one or two sentences maximum and then follow up with details afterward. I might actually read your email that way. I am not being a butthole about this. It is simply the only way I can deal with the sheer volume of daily emails. On that, let's get on into uh, the housekeeping in full. Uh, let's take care of our sponsors first. Sponsor of the day, number one, KnifeKits.com. You want to learn how to build knives? Go to KnifeKits.com. You already know how to build knives. You want materials to build your knives with? Go to KnifeKits.com. You want to build knives, but you don't think you're going to be able to do it because you think it's too hard? Go to KnifeKits.com. You want to make Kydex sheaths or anything? Go to KnifeKits.com. You want a discount? Check out the MSB under benefits, and you'll find a discount for KnifeKits.com. Uh, they are one of the best thought of suppliers to the knife making industry and knife craft industry in the, uh, 
in the world, honestly. Uh, they were a company that when we researched them as a sponsor, we checked out Blade Forms and other places. They were just thought of as being the best. And that's why we're glad to have them as a sponsor of the show and a discounter for the MSB. Next up today, Backwoods Home Magazine. Hey, do you know how I got so smart about all this stuff? Well, a lot of it was growing up in the coal region and having to feed myself as a kid. And if I didn't feed myself, I was pretty hungry. Growing a garden with my grandfather and things like that. But, uh, you know, I left that place, joined the United States military way back in 1989. And in 1993, when I left service and I came back to the country, I realized that there was not a lot for me in that small coal town. I moved to a place called Louisville, Texas, which is kind of right between Dallas and Fort Worth, north of the Dallas side, really. And I uh, had nothing. I had to start completely over from scratch. And uh, I used to walk down to this mall that was only about a mile away from the apartments that I lived in. And there was a great big giant Barnes and Nobles in there. And I found this magazine in 1993 for the first time, Backwoods Home. And I got a copy of it and sat down and bought myself a Starbucks coffee. So I didn't feel like a complete bum for basically using Barnes and Noble as a library. And I would read books and magazines and things like that. But I kept always going back to new editions of Backwoods Home. When I actually got a job and started to get established... First thing I ever ordered as a magazine subscription in my old adult life was Backwoods Home, and I've been a subscriber every, ever since. It is now 2014, and I'm still reading Backwoods Home. If you need a greater endorsement from me on that, I probably can't pull it off. Check them out today, Backwoods Home Magazine. MSB Discounter of the Day, My Thai Coffee. Why am I using them as a discounter of the day? So that when I listen to my show later for quality control purposes, when I'm outside working in the yard, I will hear myself mention it in case I forget to order it because I'm out of it, as I've been saying, and I have not gotten around to ordering more My Thai Coffee. I'm probably going to order about 10 pounds of it this time. Put some of it up, and as I run out, I'll rely on my stores and order more like a good prepper. Dang it, this stuff is so good. I just love it. I got spoiled. Matt uh, over there was sending me some for the events, and every time he sent me some for the events, he sent me more than I needed, and I did not pay attention to my stockpile. Now I'm drinking crappy Starbucks. Did you hear that? Crappy Starbucks, my breakfast blend, my favorite coffee in the world until I discovered Mai Tai. I'm drinking this crap now. And that's what it, it's not that bad. It really isn't, but it's not the same. Give Mai Tai coffee a try. My thigh, actually. Thai, how do you say it? T-H-A-I, M-A-I-T-H-A-I, coffee. And, uh, you know, it is just the best coffee I've ever drank. 10% off to all members of the MSB. On that note, consider joining the Member Support Brigade if you have not done so already. Many great discounts await you, like special deals from Backwoods Home, discounts on NiveKids.com, discounts to Mai Tai Coffee, 40 other vendors. And now that I'm back, some stuff we're really going to work on. Before I get into today's Conflicted Monday scenario and the uh, history segment, I want to let a little update on Permaethos. Tentatively, tentatively, we are going to launch the PDC for signups on the 20th of May. The 20th of May. Um, it will go to MSB members first. And uh, there's a reason for the 20th of May. And I will give a free, a free lifetime membership to the first person that emails me today. That tells me why we would choose the 20th of May. There's a reason. It has nothing to do with anything that's happened in recent time, though. This is a pretty old reason. It does have to do with the United States of America. If you email me with reason for the 20th in your subject line, the first person will get a free lifetime membership. And I will give you till tomorrow that anybody that enters, I will do a random drawing and give away some cool stuff to people with random drawings. 
Anyway, Permaethos will probably launch the new PDC on the 20th of May. All right, with that, let's get into uh, today's history segment. The year is 1340, and Alex Shrugged has this over for us at tspwiki.com, the survival wiki, again, tspwiki.com, where you can learn about prepping and you can become a contributor. Um, but today's history segment, the year 1340, from Alex, the fish speak French. As the French fleet assembles into the harbor near the town of Sluis, God, I pronounced that right, and he has the phonetics right after it. In preparation for another raid on the English coast, the English pounce on them like a lion on a wounded gazelle. Without the use of the cannon, they didn't have it yet, the way you win a sea battle is with archers. The English have fewer ships, but a new type of weapon, the longbow with a shorter arrow. At 200 yards, it just can't miss, and they can fire 20 hours a minute compared to two hours a minute from the crossbow. On the deck of the ship, one can't escape unless one jumps overboard. The sea runs red with blood, causing many people to quip. The fish drank so much blood, they now speak French. No one dared tell King Philip the fortune of France of the disaster until the court jester was pushed forward and say, to say in a squeaky voice, Oh, the cowardly English, the cowardly English. They did not jump overboard like our brave Frenchmen. King Edward III of England will control the channel. Uh, maritime traffic for some time to come. My take by Alex, who puts this together, even though the crossbow is a middle ages, is a powerful weapon. The arrows are large. It's difficult to get off more than two shots a minute. The advantage is with the penetrating power can slice right through the armor of the day. The advantage of the longbow is the number of arrows it can rain down on opposing force. As Tom Clancy often said, quality or quantity has a quality all its own. You can get a second shot. You can't get a second shot off when you look like a pincushion. After you lose your first arrow into the other guy, the crossbow archers are eaten up so fast. It doesn't matter how powerful the crossbow is. To put it in modern terms, at close range, it doesn't matter if you have a massive 50 cal single shot sniper rifle. When you're facing 100 guys with rapid fire or 22s, you're going to die the death of a thousand cuts, or I should say, a thousand slugs of lead. Um, yeah, my. My take on this is the rapid speed at which technology changes warfare. Uh, there's another segment called The Last Night, John of Galt. I won't read the whole thing, but basically it was the last night of the Middle Ages. When he dies, the Middle Ages will end. And Alex also talks there how the night was phased out because it was like this big armored thing, but could be taken apart with the new... So there's this whole thing in this time frame in the 1300s as warfare shifting. And that's true even today, yet old things still work. Um, it's easy to see how one would think the longbow would be outdated. But let me ask you, what do you think would happen if a bunch of people got together and were in a formation attacked by people with small arms but were able to rain down at 200 yards, longbow arrows even today. The weapon kills just like it did in the past. So I'm not saying it would be a good tactic to go up against people that are armed, I don't know, with uh, with mortars and machine guns, with bows. But if it had to be, it could be, as our troops found out, it's something called the Vietnam Conflict. There was a time, I can't remember the exact specifics of this, but there was a helicopter that came back, to base, uh, one of our fire bases, it had arrows stuck in it. And one of the officers said, there's no way these people can win, don't they know that? How can you fight helicopters with arrows? And another officer said something to the effect of, these people scare me, and they should scare you, because they're willing to fight helicopters 
with arrows. On that, and thinking a little bit that way, let's talk about today's conflicted Monday scenario. This comes to you from the guys that make the conflicted card game. Every Monday I read one, and we have you guys comment on the blog about the conflicted scenario. Before I do that, though, I talk about last week's conflicted Monday scenario. Last week's was describe how you would approach other survival groups after a collapse. And remember, collapse in the conflicted game is dogs and cats having puppy kittens. It's raining dead people, whatever. It's the zombies have risen and are eating the brains of the living and the dead alike. It is the ultimate Hollywood post-apocalyptic collapse. Well, the way I would do that is the way I would do it at any time. I would assess a group. Um, I would never give away too much information initially, but I would think that post-collapse, so this is not during a collapse, this is that a collapse has happened, and the remnants are trying to put things back together. Commerce actually would be restored really, really quickly. Uh, human beings have been trading with each other for as long as human beings have traveled in bands as nomads and uh, hunter-gatherers. Um, the first instinct in most situations where two groups end up meeting each other is not for one to attack the other. It is generally to try to do business with each other. So I would use, obviously, quite a bit of guarded protection, um, and I would probably make sure that when we did approach that we had cover, Uh, from flanking uh, members that remain unseen in case something went bad. I would expect the other group, if they were well-organized, to be doing the same thing. Um, I would try to quickly get past the initial formalities and get into let's make a deal, let's make any deal, let's trade something just to show that we mean what we say. Uh, but I would stay guarded, and I would slowly over time actually use these bartering opportunities to build a coalition of groups that can depend on each other um, and, and to start rebuilding. On that note, today's scenario actually has a lot of similarities with that one. Okay, And I just pulled these cards at random, but it worked out. Today's Conflicted Monday scenario, remember, you go to the survivalpodcast.com, go to episode 1340 in the blog, comment your response to today's scenario. Describe the ideal post-apocalyptic community with less than 30 people. What key skills would everyone have? What would be the role struct? What would the role structure look like, and how would you run the camp if you were the leader? So it's a multi-question one. So you have a group. It's under 30. Uh, the 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 dog and cat puppy kitten apocalypse has come. Uh, you can you can pick and choose up to 30 people, uh, under 30 people, say say 29 people. Uh, with any skill set you want, what would your dream team look like? Now, again, this is not during the collapse. This is the collapse is fully unveiled. You're now into the rebuilding stage. Rebuilding stage. There's dangers and there's opportunities. What would the role structure look like? How would you structure command, interaction, What type of, of, of hierarchy would you set up? And how would you personally run the camp if you were chosen or rose to the leadership of the position? Anyway, that's today's Conflicted Monday scenario. It's uh, time now for us to get into the stuff that you guys have sent in to me over the last oh, two weeks. Remember the format to use. Send me an email, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com is the email address, jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com, and use the 4Jack formula, one word followed by two words, 4Jack. 
So article for Jack, video for Jack, audio for Jack, question for Jack, subject for Jack, comment for Jack. You got it, okay? That goes into a special folder all by itself that I screen specifically to see if it's going to get on the air. I get hundreds of these a day. There's no way I can do them all. I do the ones that are either I think will be interesting to you or they come to me from like a hundred different people that I know you're interested. And the ones that I feel like talking about, sometimes there's stuff that's pretty hot and really should be discussed, but it's either depressing or annoying or I just am not in the mood. So Sometimes I don't cover everything. I'm not a news station here, guys. I am here to do my best for you. And to do that, I have to be happy, switched on, or angry and switched on one or the other. If something's just not going to move me on a given day, I eliminate it so that I don't sound bored, so that you don't get bored. So the first one has me angry and hopeful at the same time. It certainly has my interest. Uh, for years and years and years, Michigan has had one thing that's really made it attractive to small farmers. One thing that really kind of pushed it, especially the little farmer, the person with a hundred birds or less, you know, a couple acres, three, four acres, you know, kind of nestled in between rural and non-rural society, you know, a place where the guy was probably out of everybody's way, but then they built subdivisions around him and started effing with him, that kind of thing. And the one thing Michigan had was called the Right to Farm Act. And the Right to Farm Act was pretty clear cut. If you had land and it was yours in Michigan, you had a right to frickin' farm it. It was one of the bastions of true liberty left in America. And the people that run Michigan are frickin' stupid. Yes, this comes to me from Stuart. Stuart sent this to me, and here's what it says. Michigan loses right to farm this week. A farewell to backyard chickens and beekeepers. That might be a little yellow journalistic right there. Because I don't think it definitely means that for all of it, but it certainly, I'll read the article, but basically this is what happens. There was plenty of times where people tried to attack people with backyard chickens and things like that, and then the person was able to stand up under the Michigan Right to Farm Act and say, go screw. So now it, if you're being effed with over this, you don't necessarily have that shield anymore. Here's how it works. Michigan residents lost their right to farm this week thanks to a new ruling by the Michigan Commission of Agricultural and Rural Development, where somebody should be punched in the face, just as an aside. Gail Philburn of the Michigan Sierra Club told Michigan Live the new changes effectively removed the Right to Farm Act protection for many urban and suburban backyard farmers raising small numbers of animals. Backyard and urban farming were previously protected by Michigan's Right to Farm Act. The commission ruled the Right to Farm Act protections no longer apply to many homeowners who keep small numbers of livestock. Kim White, who raises chickens and rabbits, said, they don't want us little guys feeding ourselves. They want us all to go to the big farms. They want to do away with small farms, and I believe that's what's motivating it. The ruling will allow local governments to arbitrarily ban goats, chickens, and beehives on any property where there are 13 homes within one-eighth mile or a residence within 250 feet of the property, according to Michigan Public Radio. That's everywhere. That's everywhere. By God, that's everywhere. 13 homes within one-eighth of a mile? Guys, that's not necessarily in a line. That's a line probably connected. Some kind of crap. Or a residence within 250 feet of the property. Which, which the way these bureaucrats are probably means your residence. You get that? It probably means, so if you have a, pro, a house 
and your your property where you keep your animals doesn't have another house within 250 feet occupied by somebody else, I bet you they'll say, because I've seen it done like this before, well, your house is there. Someone needs a smack in Michigan. I'm going to get to the part that makes me feel better in a second. According to Michigan Public Radio, the Right to Farm Act was created in 1981 to protect farmers from complaints of people from the city who moved to the country and then attempted to make it more urban with anti-farming ordinances. The new changes affect residents of rural Michigan, too. It's not simply a suburban urban concern. Well, see, here's the thing. Did the farm exist there with the 250 feet of space Before your dumbass move there. So now the, 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 it basically did away with the intention of the act. So all we have to do is cram some shit around your farm, and now we can ban your ability to farm. Shady Grove Farm in Gwynn, Michigan, is a six-and-a-half-acre uh, home to 150 egg-laying hens to provide eggs to a local co-op and local restaurant. The small Michigan farm also homes uh, sheep for will. Is, is also... That's just written poorly. The, the, I'll rewrite it for you. The small Michigan farm also has sheep for wool and a few turkeys and meat chickens to provide fresh, healthy, local poultry. We practice food with integrity, Randy Butcher told The Blaze, about Shady Grove Farm. Everything we do here is 100% natural. We like to say it's beyond organic. We take a lot of pride and care in what we're doing here. Shady Grove Farm was doing its part to bring healthy, local, organic food to the tables of Gwynn residents, and it mirrors the attitudes of hundreds of other small farming operations in Michigan and thousands of others popping up around the nation. The ruling comes within days of a report by the World Health Organization. The state of the world is currently in grave danger of ending a postbiotic era, the WHO's director, Dr. Margaret Chan, argued that antibiotic use in our industrial food supply is the worst offender adding to the global crisis. The Michigan Agricultural Commission passed up an opportunity to support one of the hottest trends in food in Michigan, public demand for access to more local, healthy, sustainable food, Gail Fibben told M Live. Meanwhile, <laughs> here's the part where I feel better. Yeah, I really do have something here to feel better about. Meanwhile, neighboring Indiana Governor Mike Pence signed Senate Bill 179 a few weeks before, which freed up poultry and egg sales from local and state regulation. Yesterday, the USDA Secretary Tom Vizek announced massive funding to support research about small and medium-sized farms, such as small farms' ability to build up local and regional economic systems. Quote, there's a lot of unnecessary legal action being taken against small farms who are doing good things in their communities, end quote, said Randy Butcher, who is also on the board of directors from the Michigan Small Farm Council. The Michigan Small Farm Council actively fought the Michigan Farming for, for to support Michigan Farming Freedom, but ultimately the commission voted to approve the new restrictions. Quote, Farm Bureau has become another special interest beholden to big business and out of touch with small farmers and constitutional and property rights of the little guy. And quote, Pine Hollow Farms wrote to the Michigan Small Farm Council. The Michigan Farm Bureau endorsed the new regulatory changes. Matthew Cap, government regulation specialist at Michigan Farm Bureau, told M Live that the members weighed in and felt people raising livestock need to conform to local zoning ordinances. The Farm Bureau did not feel Michigan's Right to Farm Act meant was meant to protect the small farms and the smaller farms, and ultimately the Michigan Commission of Agriculture and Rural Development agreed that it wasn't meant to protect the smaller farms? Okay, listen. You people in Michigan have two choices right now. One is to get pissed off about this and go to your government and say, fix this shit. 
Fix this shit now and tell these people it does apply. Pass a new, an, an amendment to, an addition to, a rider to, or a new Small Farmers Right to Farm Act that says, yes, it does, because these ass clowns made this regulation. These people were not elected. These are appointed bureaucrats that do not face re-election. So if you want to fix your state, that's how you fix it. You go back to your elected officials and go, this is bullshit. Number two, you work in your communities. Your local governments, which is where you're probably better off. Because the state of Michigan has its head up his ass. This is the state that tried to ban, this tried to ban online education without their seal of approval on it for their residents. Several years ago I covered that. Which was stupid and they gave up because they realized, well how the hell are we going to police this? So basically you had people that were on the computer taking classes from Princeton University Princeton University, mind you, and the state of Michigan going, we don't condone that bullshit. Anyway, so back to the point about Michigan being stupid. What this did do is it didn't ban anything. And anybody that reports this is that it banned something needs a smack in the face. The people banning it are homeowners associations and local city and county planning governments. And if you want to make a difference, you need to get your local cities and, and what have you to pass their own micro right to farm within their jurisdictions and say, look, we're just not going to have this. We're not going to have this banned and, and create a walking to freedom within your own state. But they have a better option. Indiana's not that far away, and it's got really good farmland, and they are on the right side of this issue. This is an example of walking to freedom. This is why we need the federal government out of all of our business. All of our business, all of our business, all of our business. If it doesn't specifically rate, relate to commerce between the states, okay, or if it doesn't specifically relate to business this country does with other nations, the federal government doesn't need to have anything at all whatsoever to do with it. Why? Will that prevent states like Michigan from being stupid? Absolutely not. It will probably increase stupidity in Michigan. Because they'll go, now we can do whatever we want because they're out of our way. But it will also increase competition between the states. And then you'll see the states that aren't stupid attract the best people and build up their state their way. That's number one. Federal government needs to be out of the picture so that things like this can work better. The only other thing the federal government needs to be doing, in my opinion, this is my opinion, other than interstate commerce and business outside of the country, is when a state specifically steps on the individually constitution protected right of a citizen. That's the only time. So if Florida decides no more free speech in Florida, that's when we got to have federal government say, hey, wait a minute, you can't do that. You can't do that. You can't say that you know people can no longer write op-ed pieces in the newspaper or something like that. All right, so that's my view, and I say that because we're going to go on to another story here. This is from listener feedback, but it is not uh, an article or anything I can link to. But I will link to the article uh, for you on the Michigan ban and Indiana using its brains. So I had a recent email exchange with someone who was upset at least a little bit, with my comments about Common Core curriculum and how retarded I think it is. Um, 
And I don't think they got it because they wanted to tell me how great it was and tell me that they were an ambassador for it and how this standard would make things better. I deleted the email, so I can't give you the specifics. I'll give you the general uh, can, uh, story, though, because the what it ended with was me emailing her back and go, listen, if something's really good, you don't need people to be ambassadors for it. Right? You have to appoint ambassadors for Common Core to sell the idea to people if it actually improved the education of their children and made their children happier students in school. And the person sent me an email back and said, well, basically, then what standard should there be? Okay, here's the thing. I am opposed to standardized testing that's so specific that the teachers spend their time teaching to the test unless you and the student have chosen that by free choice. And that means the first thing we have to do is open choice. So we have to let students be able to choose the schools and the curriculums and parents to make that choice too. And until we're there, there's no fixing this because that leads to the next thing. What standard should there be? Let's start with what I was just saying. There should be absolutely 100% No federal standard for education at all. The federal government should have no business telling Florida in any way at all how to educate their children. The, state, the federal government should have no business telling Maryland how to educate its children. The federal government should have no... You got it? Okay, I can keep going to every state. The federal government should have no business at all in public education. I... I'm going to get to another solution that some people will think makes me crazy, but at minimum, even if we're going to have a public education system, it should be the business of the state the student is educated in. Because you know what you don't do? You don't go to school in Denton County, Texas, and have interstate commerce with Oklahoma. It doesn't happen. It's not the federal government's business constitutionally. So no federal standards. Number two, how did Common Core come to be? Well, Governor's Association of Federal Education Council got together and said, we need a new standard for education, by golly, and we got to get these states to adopt it. How are we going to do that? Along came the stimulus package. Yes, the stimulus package. Did you know Common Core and the stimulus package are making babies, basically, right? They're linked together at the hip. The states that adopted Common Core got money making it rain, Okay, federal government made it rain, passing out money to the states that chose, chose to adopt Common Core. Some states, like the great state of Texas, which would probably be better off as the Republic of Texas, just saying, said, you know what, take your money and shove it up your ass. Actually, one of the few things that Governor Rick Perry has done down here that I'm proud of. When the stimulus money was offered to Texas, specifically things that required us to adopt things into our school systems and to extend unemployment benefits, the state of Texas told the federal government to take their money and put it in their ass, which I guess they just gave it to other states who were willing to play ball. So now the states who voluntarily accepted Common Core are on the hook to continue to, to endorse it from the state level down to the local school districts. Okay, Because they took the money, there is no free lunch. Now, South Carolina Senate just voted and passed a legislation unanimously to ban Common Core from the state of South Carolina. So let's go to their Senate, and then their, their spineless governor has to sign it, and whether he'll do it or not. Because the federal government's going to go, well, you know what money we gave you? I'd say, hey, yeah, try to get it back. 
But see, the federal government takes money from the states and then puts it back as money for the state school system, and they take this money and they hold it hostage and say, we want you to do things. Now, certain states, like the state of Texas and a few other states, have said, we don't need you. And guess what? The federal government caved, and though they didn't get their stimulus money, they still get their federal education monies. Hmm. Because it was part of the stimulus deal. But what are they going to do when a state who took the money says no more? Who knows? We'll find out. But the point here is, the federal government has instituted this crap, and it's not their business. But the big question at the end of this very fair exchange between myself and this listener was, well, then how would you reform the system? I have no interest at all whatsoever in reforming the current public education system. Look, what if I brought you a car? And let's say you were a mechanic, whether you are or not, whether you know anything about cars or not. I'll make this easy enough that you'll be able to give the correct answer. I bring you a car. And the car runs, but it's got like, it's like the, the, the motor is running poorly and could explode any day. Okay. And the motor to replace it will cost more than the entire car is worth. The transmission is also in really bad shape. It misses and slips, but the car does move down the road. It, it does function. It eats gas. Like crazy, partly because the motor's burning wrong and the transmission's slipping and it's not efficient. But the, 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 the real reason is the design of the car was subpar. This is a very old design, not using any modern technology at all. It's just an old piece of crap car. Oh, the, the, the seats are like so nasty from not being cleaned and taken care of. They're growing mold. Like there's mushrooms growing on the seats of the car. There's holes in the floorboard. The windows are cracked. When you drive it down the road, blue smoke burns out the back of it. And we're funding the, the maintenance of this car by stealing money from people and shoving it in the car and saying, we have to keep the car running. And I say, I want you to fix the car. What would you say? Get a new car. Get a new car. This car has failed. This is the public education system. This is built on an 1880s Prussian model. Your child today, with an iPhone or an iPad in their hand, which I'm holding my iPhone 5S right now, have more computing power in that little device than the computers that put men on the freaking moon in 1969. Why are we using a Model T Ford in 2014. And the Model T was a better model car than the Prussian education system gave us in the 1880s. The modern education system is designed to condition people to go to a place to stay there and do what they're told. This teacher, who's probably a wonderful person, said, my children can have an adult conversation about issues thanks to Common Core. Nonsense. 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 Listen. Two plus two is four. We do not need a long discussion to teach a kid that two plus two is four. We don't need to be writing a math sentence to show that two plus two is four. What we need is a market-based solution. The deconstruction of the public education system and transform over to a very small public subsidized educational system or completely do away with it. And here's the deal I'll make with any bureaucrat that says, well, what about the children that will never get an education system? What we'll do is we'll create the opportunity 
to cut the funding per student in half. If that student elects to go anywhere but the public school that the state says they have to go to, that that student can receive that money in a grant and then choose any education they want with no oversight by the state whatsoever at all, period, except that they have to go somewhere and learn something. And we can put a little standard in there. Can you read? Can you write? Okay? But we don't need a big entity for that. And you can keep your dinosaur outdated public school systems. But every time a student leaves, they take all the money you were getting for them because you don't need it anymore because they're not there anymore, and they get half of it to privately fund their education. And we can take that into a scale down over time where eventually we take all public funding out of it altogether and let students form their own programs to teach themselves because we are entering a place where the average student could probably be educated for about a thousand dollars a year and parents that say i can't afford that you're already paying more than that you're already paying more than that you're already paying more than that if i gave you a thousand dollars and said now it's a thousand dollars you would be like well now i can afford it well what if i stop taking a thousand dollars away from you Because you're paying it, you're paying it. You know, I don't pay property taxes, I rent. Your landlord pays property taxes. Oh, wait a minute, no, he doesn't. You do. You do. If you rent an apartment, I guarantee you, you're spending more than $1,000. And we can be educating children for $1,000 a year right now. That's not possible. Where would they go? They would stay home. And then sometimes they would go places and children that wanted more would work harder and figure out ways to get to go do more things and interact with each other. The reality, though, is this. Even if we're going to keep public education, the federal government, by the Constitution of the United States of America, should have no say at all in how the individual states run their schools. Not suggestions, not, well, they can choose how to adopt Common Core and how to adapt it to their individual. No, no, no. There should be no, here's money and you do something with this. No. No, no, no. No federal involvement with education. Is that complicated? There's teachers out there right now that listen to this show pulling their hair out because they can't believe I'm saying this. It's a broken jalopy car that you're trying to fix. And here's the truth. It is 2014. We have innovation going on everywhere. The days where a student gets a job where they go someplace every day after graduation for eight hours and sit still and do what they're told or go to a factory and stand on a line are dying They're dying. Those kind of jobs don't even exist in this country by and large anymore. The jobs in this country today and the jobs of the future are entrepreneurial in nature. And this is something, again, that the people that run the education system refuse to accept. There are things you are forcing children to learn that they will never use in their lives ever at all. People will say, well, why doesn't the U.S. have higher math scores than Japan? I don't care. You know what I actually care about? Our students that are going to use math in their jobs at that level, the calculus level, the advanced algebra level, the geometry level, the engineering level, those students, those students who know their path lies in that direction, 
How does their math scores compare with the students that will be doing that in Japan? Because you know how much algebra we need to teach the average person? How to do math in your head with algebra. Like how to add 47 in, 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 or how to multiply 47 times 50 in your head. Right? We could teach basic algebra for that. Right? Okay? We could teach basic, and that's a, a, a practical everyday application of an algebraic principle. But we do not need, we do not need every student to take algebra, advanced algebra, and calculus just so their test scores are better, which is a, another problem I have with this Common Core curriculum crap. And I'll tell you what, it's not just about Common Core. What I said to this person was, this is just the latest problem in public education. This is the latest of many. Texas does not have Common Core, but we have our own standardized testing at the state level. Now, I can't complain about this constitutionally because Texas has a right to do this. Um But we have what's called the STAR test. They might call it something else now, but when I, my son was in school, it was the STAR test. My son, I'm going to say this with pride, straight A student. Straight A's. I think in his entire high school career, he did fall off straight A's. He had straight A's up until 8th grade. And in high school, I think over the entire year, or the entire four years, he got two B's. So all A's for four years and two B's was constantly concerned about whether or not he would pass the STAR test. And what I kept telling him is, you don't understand that test isn't for you, it's for your school and your teacher. But they say, if I don't pass it, I won't graduate. And just stop. But see, as soon as you introduce this component into the educational system, there's a standardized test to determine whether or not you've gotten enough information. That's called a final exam. should be administered by a teacher who writes her own freaking lesson plan, by the way. Well, what if one teacher is better than the other teacher? Then students should be able to choose what teacher they get and what school they go to. Shocking, I know. But for God's sakes, you can't have this type of a system without creating this dynamic where students end up feeling responsible. And, and the teachers, you do it. And I know you do it, and you know you do it. You tell the kids that it, it, it affects the entire school how well they do. I, don't tell me you don't do it. Don't tell me you don't do it. Maybe one of you doesn't do it. But by and large, you teachers convey to the students, not only do you need to pass this exam, not only do you need to pass this exam so you can graduate third grade or fourth grade or fifth grade or whatever, not only do you need to do that, but the total scores of the school, that matters too. You know what? My student's score on his test should be about whether or not he's mastered the material. And that should be judged by a teacher who's qualified enough for the do the job. And if the teacher's not qualified to do that, then they shouldn't be there. But how the school ranks in some way that money gets doled out, that's stolen from taxpayers, that's not my kid's problem. And the other problem with modern education, this is the biggest problem with these giant school systems and all of this money that you ass clowns get and waste forcing kids into an unnatural situation is, and this is why we have kids killing each other. You have a system where a child strikes another child and is told, oh, you get in-school suspension if they get caught. Kids are picked on every day, tormented every day. And what are they told? It's just part of growing up, Johnny. It's learning to deal with the real world. It's not the real world. Actions taken by students to bully other students on a daily basis in public school, if done outside of public schools, especially amongst adults, in a workplace environment would result in arrest 
jail time and being terminated. And that doesn't happen in our schools, and it's not going to happen in our schools because we have a misguided belief that we have a right to an education. You don't have a right to have an education provided to you. You have a right to pursue your education. Okay? There is no right... No right whatsoever to any individual to be given an education. Rights are about not impeding. And I'll tell you what, this current belief that education is a right is impeding the right of children to choose their education and parents to choose the education of their children. We are destroying the entrepreneurial spirit that made this country great by churning out drones. And just because the drones can communicate their dronism at a so-called higher level, either written or verbally, doesn't mean they're not drones. It doesn't mean they're not drones, and it doesn't mean that they've learned critical thinking. Critical thinking is not knowing how to explain seven times seven in a math sentence. Critical thinking is knowing why the hell do I care what seven times seven is? How is that applied to something that I give a shit about? And if it's not, other than the fact that I'll memorize it, I don't really care. Critical thinking is about determining the problem for yourself, not being told how to analyze the problem. So how would I fix the public education system? I would abolish it. I would abolish it. I would abolish it. I would abolish it. I, I'm also a realist, and I realize that that cannot be done overnight. So, you know, contrary to the happiness and uh, of the purest libertarians and anarchists in my audience who, who just say, well, you just abolish it and get rid of it because all taxation is theft. I agree with you. But, you know, I don't think it's good for a person to be on medications of certain kinds. I think it's very, very dangerous and very, very bad. But if they've been on that medication for a long time... Even though it's bad, even though you should have never went on it and you just take it away, they can like ah, and die. All right? So the public education system is one of those things. It's so intertwined into the entire nation's structure that it has to be dismantled and disassembled. So again, my first step would simply be this. Any child in a school district that I was running could take half the money and fund their own education. And I don't care how. I don't care how. Because whatever you do will probably be better. Now, well, what if you have a parent that's getting the money and spending it on things other than education, and then, uh, then that's theft. Then that's fraud. That's embezzlement. There's all kinds of ways to prosecute that under current law. We don't need a new law. It's for their education. Well, what if their education is going to marine land and sea world and, and writing reports on orca whales? Great. Don't care. They're learning how to write. I guarantee they're learning math. You can't write a report on orca wells without learning math. So they're learning how to write and they're learning math. They'll figure it out. What they want to learn for themselves from there. I don't care. But that would take away money from the schools that need it desperately. No, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't. You'd still have the same amount of money per student left in the school system. Instead of 10,000 students, you have 5,000. You still have the same money per headcount. The economy of scale. And Okay, fine. Here's what we'll do then. When a student leaves, they'll take half the money with them. The other half of the money that would, would normally just go away and not be spent by taxpayers at all, we'll cut it in half. We'll cut it in half. And until you lose 50% of your students, you keep half of the half. 
So let's just, to make it easy, we use a round number so people with Common Core can comprehend this. $20,000 a student is being spent. You think that's high? Plenty of school districts that are spending that kind of money per student right now. It's insane. You do not need $20,000 a year to educate a third grader. But apparently some people think we do. Okay, so we take $20,000 and the third grader says, I'm going to leave my school district. And I'm going to go to a private school. I'm going to go to homeschooling. I'm going to go to private, you know, self-directed education, whatever. Well, then they get up to $10,000. Now, they don't just get a check for $10,000. They submit their costs for their education like an expense report, which is a valuable skill to learn anyway. And then they are reimbursed for the expenses. What if they don't have the money up front? Don't worry. All these companies out there will set up a system to allow for that. They'll take your payment in, in the rear or whatever, knowing that it's guaranteed by the state. So that's not a problem. So now there's $10,000 left. So Johnny left, and, and Tommy stayed behind, and Tommy's getting $20,000 per head. Okay. Now, the $5,000, the half of the half, stays in the school system. So when someone leaves, the dollar per student actually goes up. And why would I make such a deal? Because in five years, the private institutions that will develop around a free choice model will blow away, blow away what's left behind. They will be getting more money than ever spent per student. Every time a student leaves, it's an exponential increase. Now, what happens when more than half of your students leave? When more than half of your students leave, your, 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 your system is disbanded, and students then choose the public education institution of their choice within a certain mile range, say 50 miles. How's he going to get 50 miles? I don't know. Take your money and leave. So you don't have to go to another public school. You can go up to 50 miles. I don't care if you go 100. As long as you're responsible to get there yourself, oh, we're not providing buses for this. But basically, the way that would work in large, in large areas, where there's like 10 schools to a, a city, as they cave in on themselves, they'll consolidate down and you'll end up with two or three. And very few students, I think, would still want to be going there. And there'll be schools where the average class size is 10 with a one-on-one -on -one mentorship. And there'll be schools where there's a 1,000 to a class and it's all online. And students will be using both models. This is how I would deconstruct this. And I would phase out the public contribution over time, or at least phase it. I'd love to phase it all the way out. If, if we can't get there, if we really can't get there, then we, we bring it down to a quarter of its old standard. And if people want more than they're willing to be provided assistance to go, you have to fund it yourself. But what if my daughter wants to go somewhere and she can't afford it? Well, then maybe she'll get a job. Maybe she'll start working part-time. They'll have plenty of time. Do you realize that the amount of hours a student spends on their education, half of them are wasted at least. So we could cut the time students spend on their education, I believe, easily by 50%. And we could increase their learning twofold. Because they'd be learning what they want to learn. Well, what about the student that never learns trigonometry? I don't care. What about the student that realizes they need the trigonometry and they never learned it? They can learn it then. What if they have to go back and, and we'll learn as we go? But trust me, it'll be okay. Because 80 to 90% of people that come out of our current education system never use most of the crap that they're forced to learn anyway. In fact, most of them could not pass 
a test they got an A on three years after they left school. So you've actually taught them nothing. You've taught them nothing. If a student can't go back and take the same test they got an A on in a year and get another A, they haven't learned. They've been prepared for the test, they've gotten over the hurdle, and now whatever they've learned has atrophied off. So how would I fix it? I would destroy it. You don't rehabilitate a failed system. You replace it. Now, all of my planning will never happen because there's too much money, so people have to go build the private institutions and make them cost-effective on their own so that people will choose to withdraw from public education and use more cost-effective forms of private education. And when it comes to the government saying what qualifies as education and what doesn't, there has to be a point where parents start to say, we don't give a shit what you say. They're my kids, they'll go where I say for school, and you don't get to say it anymore. And we need about 10,000 parents that think that way in any given state or region to be a tipping point, to a point where the state just goes, we're not going to mess with that. Anyway, let's go on to something else. Next up, some good news. And this will be another one where uh, people that you know come from the libertarian or anarchist persuasion, which, which I do as well, many times being purists will not get why I'd be happy about this. And I'll try to convey why I'm happy about this in, in multiple ways. And again, some people just won't get it because it's an all or nothing, hold your breath deal. And the last time I checked, when you tried that, you turned blue, you passed out, you woke back up and you were right where you were when you decided to hold your breath and you didn't go anywhere. So, um, this is on Capitol Press and, and the original email came to me from Pamela, but Pamela just sent me a PDF of the legislation that passed, not really the story behind it. But if you remember a couple of years ago, California got on this idea that they would come up with a GMO labeling requirement for food. If you sold food in the state of California that said, uh, that, that might have GMOs in it, you weren't sure whether it did or not, but you couldn't verify that it didn't, you would have to put may contain GMOs on the food label. And, uh, it really seemed like it was going to pass. There was massive popular support by it for it. And then the food industry came out and spent billions of dollars, uh, slandering the, the, the initiative. And I'm still not convinced it wasn't flat-out voter fraud uh, that resulted in the initiative being defeated because the the polls versus the results were so far apart. But anyway, California failed. Oregon and Washington gave it a shot. They failed. Vermont. Vermont decided to take a run at this, and Vermont passed the GMO labeling bill. Again, this is from Capitol Press. Vermont lawmakers have passed the country's first state bill to require labeling of genetically modified foods, underscoring a division between powerful lobbyists for U.S. food industry and the American public that overwhelmingly says it approves of the idea. Mount Pillar, Vermont. Vermont lawmakers have passed the country's first state bill to require labeling of genetically modified foods, underscoring a division between powerful lobbyists for the U.S. food industry and the American public that overwhelmingly says it approves of the idea. The Vermont House approved the measure Wednesday evening, about a week after the state Senate and Governor Peter Shumlin 
Uh, and, and oh, the let me read that again, guys. I'm sorry, I'm probably a little off on my timing with just getting back to work here. The Vermont House passed the measure on Wednesday evening, about a week after the state Senate, and Governor Peter Shumlin says he plans to sign it. So it's passed both houses, and the government says he's going to. The governor says he's going to sign it. So this will become law in the state of Vermont. The requirements will take effect July 1st, 2016, giving food producers time to comply. Because we all know it's very difficult to put may contain. GMO on a label that has all this other crap on it, uh, it's impossible to, to do. It's, it's going to be an un- anyway, I'll hold on. Schumann praised the vote. I'm proud of Vermont for being the first state in the nation to ensure that Vermonters will know what's in their food, he said in a statement. Genetically modified organisms, often used in crop plants, have been changed at the genetic roots to be resistant to insects, germs, and herbicides. The development in Vermont is important because it now puts the U.S. on the map of governments taking a stance against the practice that has led to bountiful crops and food production but has stirred concerns about the dominance of big agribusiness and the potential for unforeseen effects on the natural environment. You can see how there's a little bit of yellow journalism going on here. It has led to bountiful crops and food production. No, it hasn't. The GMO promise of bigger yields has not come to be. It popped and it flopped. It went up and it went back to standard yields. And now people doing non-GMO crops in, 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 in are getting better yields. So it's bullshit. Some scientists and activists worry about the potential effects on soil health and pollinating uh, pollination of neighbors' crops. Twenty-nine other states have proposed bills this year, and 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 last to require genetically modified organism or GMO labeling. According to uh, conference of state legislators, two other New England states have passed laws to require GMO labeling, but the legislation checks effect only when neighboring states also approve the requirement. They are Maine and Connecticut, neither neighbor Vermont. So. <laughs> Maine and Connecticut have passed the law, but it only takes effect if other states do it. Will you grow a pair? Maine or Maine and Connecticut? Maine and Connecticut? Will you guys grow a pair and just worry about yourselves? The European Union has already restricted the regulation labeling and sale of GMO foods. Several credible polls have found that Americans overwhelmingly favor the notion of labeling genetically modified food. Organic farmers and others are praising Vermont's move, while the Washington, D.C.-based Grocery Manufacturers Association, which represents the food producers, calls it a step in the wrong direction. Why? Because it opposes you? Anyway, you can read the rest of the article if you want to. Let me explain this to you in the non-bullshit Jack Spirico Manor. Let's start out with the whole, well, is an anarchist, Jack? Shouldn't you oppose this because it's government intervention? Listen, listen. Again, I talked about how if a guy's on medication, he should have never started taking, but he's been on it for 10 years. You take it away, you can kill him dead. Okay? We are where we are. We are where we are. And to get to where we would like to go, which is minarchism to anarchism, in my view, is, like anarchism to me is a goal that I will never see in my lifetime. I know that. I'm saying that I think the perfect system would be one where no one used a gun to steal from somebody else for the benefit of another person. Just saying. That's my idea of a perfect system. And if you don't think that's the perfect system, I'd like to know what you think is the perfect system. What allows for a person with force to use it to steal from another person for the benefit of another and make that okay? Just saying, right? So that's the goal. Minarchism is on the direction. I'd love to get to a smaller government, a smaller state, less government intervention. But this is the situation with food labeling. The government has already stuck its fingers in every cranny, orifice, nook, and butthole within this world. The government has required labeling and procedures to the point of ridiculousness, to where the consumer now expects, if it's in my food, it'll be on the label. 
because we've handicapped the consumer by doing this. So if something's in food, then if you're going to require this, then I think you should require that everything in the food be identified. Okay. So let's look at how this plays out. So you take something like soybeans, which are in lots of foods, soy meal, soy beans, soy oil, whatever, and you modify the soybean so I can, I can spray glyphosate on it, glyphosate on it, Roundup, and I spray it on the plant. I spray it when the plant comes up. I spray it in the middle of the plant's growth cycle because the plant can now be drenched in Roundup and still grow happy and kill the weeds around the plant. So when you do this, this product, Roundup, is actually genetic, not genetically, um, chemically taken up into the plant. And when you eat the product of the plant, you're actually eating Roundup. Even though the label clearly says, do not ingest this, right? You're ingesting it. It's now in your food. And if I take that soybean and I put it into your, your prepared food that you buy in the freezer section, where you shouldn't shop anyway, you're now eating Roundup. So to me, <laughs> the contains GMOs or may contain GMO addition to the label is only halfway in the right direction. I think they should actually have to put atrazine, glyphosate, etc. in the list of ingredients. It's in the food. You've sprayed the food with it. You cannot remove it once you have. So therefore, you are giving the person herbicides in their food. So at least we're going in the right direction with the GMO label. Now, let's talk about all of the poor, rich executives in the food industry. This is undue burden. This will destroy the food industry. Really? So we've had warning labels on cigarettes, I think, since the 1980s. I think warning labels have been on alcohol like since the 50s or something like that. Are, did those industries crash and burn? Was it an un, undue hardship to put a label on cigarettes or a label on alcohol that warned the public, hey, this could be bad for your health? You know what, though? Everybody already knew that. Everybody, this is why they're freaking out. You see, when they put, you know, this product may cause cancer on cigarettes, people went, no shit, give me my Marlboros. All right? I don't smoke. I don't think you should either. But the average smoker did not give a shit when they put that warning label on there. Didn't care. Already knew. Dennis Leary had an old bit. He said you could put a skull and crossbones for a label, black and white skull and crossbones, and call the cigarettes tumors, and you'd probably have the number one brand, brand in America of cigarettes. No one that smoked really cared. If you're smoking, you're killing yourself, and you know it, and you're okay with that. Alcohol, we've known for a long time that a little is fine and too much is bad. That if you drink a lot every day, you can destroy your liver, you can give yourself cirrhosis, you can become an alcoholic. So when people put on, and we knew that mothers shouldn't drink when they're pregnant. We knew that. So when they put labels to that effect on alcohol, no one really cared. But it wasn't an undue hardship. It wasn't something complicated. Like the labels on the food have to be printed anyway. Adding a line is no big deal. These guys change their labels all the time when they reduce the size of the packaging and don't reduce the price so that they can make us think we're not paying more. Okay, So changing labels on food happens every day in this industry. It's not an undue hardship. What they're actually afraid of is this. Most people, no matter what you want to believe, don't realize that every time they buy something in the store, odds are it is genetically modified in its ingredients. They don't know. 
No, they don't know. No, they, you know and I know, but they don't know. They don't know. The, the mom that goes down the aisle and says, huh, I'm just tired and I want to have dinner next week and I want it to be something decent. I don't want to go to McDonald's and I'm going to go to the freezer section because I don't have time to cook a full meal and, and buy Stouffer's or Marie Callender's or whatever. Doesn't think to herself, you know, I don't like this, but I'm feeding my children GMOs. She doesn't know. It's lasagna, for God's sakes. Why would there be a GMO in lasagna? But when she pulls it out and says, may contains GMO. Well, I, I, what is that? I don't want that for my kids. You pull out another one. GMO, 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 GMO. Gah! What the hell's going on? What is this crap? That's what they're afraid of. Now, here's what else they're afraid of. There is no reason that any of these big brands, General Mills, etc., are going to have an undue hardship to put May Contains GMO on their product. There's none. Well, we're not sure. If you're not sure, then it may contain. Okay? You do know. First of all, all of these assholes, well, we're not sure which one's doing which one. No, they all do. You all know that. You all know you're sourcing broad spectrum stuff. You all know that it's everywhere. You all, this is why you're opposed to it. Not because you're not sure, because you are damn well sure and you know it's everywhere. Okay? Putting it on the label is not a hardship. It's not a major expense. That's all bullshit. I'll tell you what is hard to do. To ship Pillsbury biscuits or Kellogg's cornflakes to Vermont with a label that says make and change GMO and then ship the same product to New Jersey or Pennsylvania where it doesn't have that label to make Vermont specific packaging. Oh, that would be a hardship. That would be difficult. This is why they're opposed. Because what they're going to have to do, especially if two or three more states grow a pair and don't go, well, we'll do it, but only if the states neighbor us do it too. Like you cowards in Maine. At least you started down the right. But if like Florida and Texas and Arkansas, Oklahoma, you get about five or six states to do this, then it's the game, that's game over. It's game over. We've all bought products that have a certain label or warning on them that's specific to the state of California when we're not in California. Why? It's not economically feasible for a producer of product to market a product and label it one way for California and do so differently for the other 49 states. So they put, you know, meets California carb standard compliance for emissions on any industrial motor that comes out because, well, like, if I'm going to sell it in California, I'm going to sell it elsewhere. It all has to be the same anyway. I can't make it better for California. I just have to accept it. So this is what they're afraid of. They're afraid that just one state's enough, that just one state's enough to where they're going to have to label this shit this way everywhere. And unlike tobacco and unlike cigarettes, where they did the labeling, oh, it could be an undue hardship. It, it won't be an undue hardship to label it. But they may find out that if the consumer actually knows, the consumer will start to make other choices. And that's what they're afraid of. And they're not afraid, even though they're like, it would be financial cataclysm. And it, No, 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 no. What they're afraid of is even 5% of people that are eating GMO products decide... No, I don't want this anymore. Because what that does is, number one, these guys make 1% and 2% margins because they've built an industry that works that way. So when you lose 5% of your audience, you've got a problem. But what the real problem is, 
What did we start out with? Michigan losing its right to farm act. Indiana using its brain and strengthening small and local farms. There is a war. There is a war right now on natural small scale farming. They want to create regulations that say you can't have animals and food on the same farm. Do you know this? They want to create a like a farmer that wants to grow beans. Yes, beans can be grown sustainably and then graze the field after it's done with chickens and, and let them clean the stubble up and turn everything in. And then next year plant corn. Yes, you can do corn sustainably too, by the way. Indians did it for a long time. Oh, Native Americans. I don't want to offend anybody. Did it for a long time. And then after the corn runs its cycle to put the chickens through there again, or maybe pigs, or maybe pigs and then chickens behind the pigs, they want to say you can't do that because it's dangerous. Though they can't find anybody that's sick or died because that was done. It's just a bunch of freaked out parents that have watched one too many specials on TV or some kid died of some disease or something like that. It's not related to small farms in the first place, but they want to, this hyper freaking moronism is what's going on here. So what this does by creating awareness of GMO and creating even a small segment of the market, two, three, five percent of the market saying, we don't want this. It creates Very little decline of the mass market, in truth. It creates massive, incremental, exponential growth in the non-GMO small farm market. It is the best news in the world for organic farmers. It is the best news in the world for beyond organic farmers. By the way, you organic farmers, I think a lot of you guys should drop the organic label. Yep. I think you should pick up our AgriTrue label over at AgriTrue.com, but that's not the real real reason. Do, do you know why I think you should drop the GMO label or the uh, 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 organic label if you're an organic farmer? You cannot label your food non-GMO if you're organic. Did you know that? Because it's reasonable that the customer already knows if it's organic, it's not GMO, even though people like Monsanto and their ilk, the scum of the earth, are doing everything they can right now. And trust me, they're going to get it done because the government owns organic, which is why it's polluted. The organic label is polluted because the government owns it. And the government destroys whatever it touches. The government destroys whatever it touches. Here is what is going to happen. They are going to sell... GMO into organic. Soon, organic will not mean does not contain GMO, but the organic producer will still be restricted from putting non-GMO on there. Because it might hurt the other producer who is GMO. Well, kudos to Vermont. And again, to those of you that think, well, you shouldn't be for any government regulation of anything like this, listen. If there was no labeling requirements and laws and all this crap and regulation and people stifling competition and farmers, then I would be against adding this. I'd say that the market is free to do what the market wants to do. And that if you want to advertise that you don't have GMOs, put does not contain GMOs. And if you want to advertise that you do, say we use GMOs. And if you don't want to tell people either way, it's up to them to ask and to go, I'm going to make a decision not to buy from people that don't tell me the truth. But when you've used government and force to create the illusion of disclosure and then deny the consumer disclosure, we've got a problem. And then in the current system, the only way to address this is to say, if you are going to create the illusion of disclosure, then by God, we shall have actual disclosure. So if you want to repeal all of that and move toward a stateless society with independent third-party vetting organizations that issue certifications based on voluntary criteria, etc., 
Do you want to return to a system where people bought from a farmer because they know their farmer? And they ask the person what's in their food, and then they're told. And the only time there's a problem is when they're specifically lied to because that's fraud. I'm all for it. But if we're not there, then we must at least acknowledge that we're deceiving people through the apparatus of force. And if the force is going to be there and create the illusion of disclosure, then again, we should have disclosure. So here's what I think happens now. Number one, I think other states go, oh, somebody went first. Great. Let's do it too. So I, I predict by the end of the year, a minimum of six more states passing similar legislation. It's now been done. This is like the four-minute mile. It was impossible. It can't be done. Even the hippies in California won't do it because it's a myth that only hippies want this, by the way. Um, so we can't do it. But now other states are going to go, free of Vermont? Okay. If Vermont can do it, then maybe we can do it. Um, I would not be surprised. I would not be surprised to see New Hampshire do this. I would probably bet you someone in the South, it probably won't be Texas. It probably won't be Texas. I don't think we have the stones for it yet. But someone like Arkansas or Louisiana or Alabama or someone like that. Someone in that kind of, you know, Missouri-ish, you know, where they're working toward greater food freedoms and things like that. See, what states need to realize is that you don't really benefit from Nabisco. Okay? You don't. You don't benefit from Kellogg's. You don't benefit from these big corporations. These big corporations are parasites. They exist in a parasitic model. They extort your farmers, they extort your people, and they poison your people, and they give you added cost to your health care services. They, they, they don't benefit you. All of you in government, please pay attention. The giant corporations do not benefit you at the state level. Now, they benefit the pockets of the politicians. Uh, don't get me wrong. The whole plutocracy, false democracy, oligarchy, incestual mess. Of course, it's beneficial there. But actually, the functioning daily operations of the economy of Florida or Alabama or Texas or Pennsylvania or Washington or California, you don't really benefit Because of Nabisco. Oh, they have lots of jobs in our... Well, there's some to be somebody... Look, it's food. Okay? Those guys have outsourced so much overseas anyway that they're not creating as many jobs as could exist here. But they don't directly benefit your state. Nabisco doesn't revitalize an urban blight food desert area. It doesn't. Small farms, urban farms do. People go in and set up farms on four acres in urban farming scenarios and create four or five or six jobs, real jobs, by people that actually want the job that they have. They also create an entire new scalable economy that builds off of that. When somebody puts in a beautiful little urban farm, a lot of times someone will say, huh, you know, I've always wanted to open a restaurant. 
Now I have this locally supplied food available, and since this area is still in recovery, that building is low cost. I'll take a gamble and go ahead and open that restaurant, form that relationship. And the farmer's like, that's great, because now we can sell to somebody that's right over there, a repeatable recurrent revenue, and we can begin to expand operations with a better understanding of our forecastable revenue. And then people come to the restaurant, and then all of a sudden in a place where there was no people hanging out, there's a farm, there's a restaurant, there's a new little pub, there's a little pub area, and if the government would get out of the way and stop making farmers liable for anything that happens anywhere near their farm, maybe we would have people start getting together and putting together little public spaces where people can hang out and observe the farm and things like that, and then schools start to do field trips where kids come and actually see where their food comes from. And when that happens, somebody down the road goes... Holy crap, they sell everything they can produce. Let's do this too. And then all of a sudden some crazy maniac like Jack Spirico gets some partners together and they're building a hundred odd acre full on permaculture farm in the mountains of West Virginia and saying this is just our first one. So from the multi hundred acre concern down to the little four or five or half acre urban farm, all of this creates this new small economy. That's regional-based economy that spurs spending locally. Attention those in state governments and local governments and county governments. This does benefit your state, county, or region. It does. It actually builds a local economy. So, say it. If you actually are going to tell people that you are important, that it is important that they know how their food was handled and what's in it, then fulfill the frickin' promise and tell them everything, not just the parts you think that they need to know. And then if that happens to create this additional market opportunity, that actually builds local economies. Now, Jack, listen. You're supposed to be a good little anarchist. Don't you understand that if we got all of that crap out of the way, that there'd be millions of those little farms? I understand that. I understand that. But the patient's been on massive doses of high blood pressure medication for 20 years. He should have never went on them. It was manageable with stress reduction techniques, meditation, exercise, and diet. I understand this. But after 20 years, if you just take it away, pop goes the heart. And the guy dies. Right? And don't tell me it doesn't happen because I have a good friend who died several years ago at the, the, the extremely old age of 41 because he went on and off of high blood pressure medication. I'm convinced, and his wife is convinced, that is why he had a heart attack at 41. He was in shape. He was fit. He came home from jogging and died on the ground at the front of his house after he made a brief phone call to his wife and told her, I feel great. I just got done with my run. Okay, that is what happens. Well, our whole economy, our whole nation is now that patient on large doses of medication. It has to be weaned off a controlled descent, a controlled repeal. And the way it starts is if the government is going to claim they're doing something and create an illusion that it's being done, do we get rid of the illusion? that we actually let people see the man behind the curtain. And the man behind the curtain in this instance is spraying your food with toxic chemicals that have been genetically modified at the DNA level artificially to get that done. 
So you're putting a substance in your body that's both contaminated with things you don't think are there and has been altered genetically in a way that was never designed to exist in nature. You're putting that in your body too, for at least you to know that. And again, if it changes the habit of even 1% of consumers, the opportunity and demand it creates for small producers is massive. And it isn't by mandating anything really other than telling people this is what you're buying. And I think that is reasonable. I think if we look at all the things government does on a daily basis that are unreasonable and say, is it reasonable that we would say you must tell people what you're selling them, especially when you've created the illusion that you already are, is that reasonable? Far more reasonable than many other things people are far less upset about. Anyway, good, to you, good for you guys in Vermont. And will other states stand up now Grow a pair and get this done. Oh, the other thing that's going to happen. The Grocery Manufacturers Association and other large groups are going to sue the state of Vermont. They're going to sue them. <sighs> and I don't know whether uh, Vermont will win or these big-time people with billions of dollars to try to sue Vermont will win. But if people stand in this instance, I don't think they can lose. I don't think they can lose. Will the people of Vermont who asked for this now stand behind it? That, that's, that's what it's going to come down to. And the more states that do it, the better. If we can get a dozen states to do this in the next year or two, it, it's, it's too big for them to sue everybody. But they'll, they'll, they'll still do it. They'll sue one. And then they'll say that's precedent to, to repeal it from others. Here's the danger. The federal government could intervene. Because Nabisco, right, that's being forced to put this label on to sell in Vermont, is doing business in multiple states and indeed is bringing the food into Vermont. So it's interstate commerce. So therefore, federal supremacy would apply and the federal government could pass a law banning states from requiring GMO labeling of any product that's not 100% wholly produced and delivered within their state. It could even cite precedent under FDR that if that food could have been sold outside of the state, that it also applies to interstate commerce, and the federal government could come in and ban this practice. Oh, but would they? Oh, do you want to be... I mean, that's almost as bad as jacking around with an Indian reservation, isn't it? Do you want to be the politician that said we have to act, we have to prevent the citizens of this state from requiring a label for... Because, see, the reality is there is massive, massive, massive public support for the labeling of GMO. And right now, I would say there's a minority that's opposed to it, and they don't really know why, or they're misguided. In other words, they're, they're, they're saying what I've objected to a bunch of times here. We should have any of that. Yeah, but we do, so we should have that too. Um, so there's a minority that are opposed to it, that are legitimately opposed to it. There is a massive majority that are for it, And then there's a pretty big group of people in the middle that, huh? What? GMO? What's that? I don't know about that. Give me a Big Mac, right? They're the guys that kept smoking the cigarettes even when they put tumors on the label, right? So in the end, that trifecta has to add up to a substantial number of people that are vehemently for GMO labeling. And I would say that number has to be about 65%, but I think that number's there. And I think that it's actually pretty easy to get quite a few of the people in the what's that camp over to the yeah, you should tell us camp. Because again, we're not banning it. We're not saying you can't use it. We're not saying you can't do it. All we're saying is if you're going to use it, 
You have to say you're using it. And if you're opposed to that, are you also opposed to the person being required to put a list of ingredients on the label? Some of you are. I understand you. I don't agree in the current climate, but I understand you. If you think food should have to contain things like sugar and you know FDC red coloring number five or whatever, if you think food should have that on the label, then give me a good reason not to include genetically modified organisms as basically a disclosure of what's in the food. Anyway, I do think that this now has some momentum and it'll go forward and a big legal battle will take place. <sighs> let's go on to something else before I snap a gasket. As we move on to something next, let's go ahead. I'm going to play a, uh, a brief recording for you, uh, a story, uh, a new poll that's out on Fox, and then I'll come back to you and talk about it. A new Gallup poll shows almost half of Connecticut residents want to move out of state. Only one other state in the country is home to more unhappy campers. Fox Connecticut's Mike Krasik explains why people here are looking to leave. All the taxes and all the payroll and uh, keeping inventory on the shelves, it's a challenge every month. Carlene Quinn is the owner of A.S. Labiniac, a family-run farm and pet supply store in Kensington that's been open for 125 years. She says high taxes and a restrictive business climate in the state makes it harder for her to stay in business. Quinn says she would move out of the state if she could. I do have ties here, so the only other option is um, closing business down. Quinn is not alone. 49% of Connecticut residents would move out of the state, according to a recent Gallup poll. Illinois came in first at an even 50%. Maryland, Nevada, and Rhode Island rounded out the top five. We're not going to see more jobs. We're not going to see lower taxes. So Connecticut's basically in this slow growth mode that I think we'll see for the next decade. Local economist Ron Van Winkle attributes brutal winters like the one we all just lived through and the high cost of living and stagnant job growth in the state as reasons why people are looking to leave. And for a retiree, that's an often an important decision. If I can live cheaper in another state, I'll move there. Connecticut's AARP chapter says they've heard from seniors who are concerned about retiring in the state. The association is lobbying lawmakers to pass legislation to prevent seniors from being scammed into paying higher utility bills. It's also pushing to make it easier for workers in the state to save for retirement. And so, you know, those are some things that can go a long way to making people uh, feel more financially secure and, and um, hopefully, you know, more willing to stay here in Connecticut. When Connecticut residents do leave, they tend to head toward warmer climates. According to recent U.S. population data, Florida has seen the greatest migration of Connecticut residents in the past year. In Hartford, Mike Krafsik, Fox, Connecticut. You know, there's a lot going on there. One of me is the, the unique moronic attitude that only bureaucrats and people that work for places like ARP, which is the one lady talking was from, it can come to. So you, you talk to the people that want to leave, and what do the people that want to leave say? The, the, the taxes are too high, and there's too many regulations, and it's too difficult to run payroll, and it's just a, a bad climate for business, so I want to leave. And then they say, well, you know, to fix this, what we're going to do is make it harder for utility companies to scam seniors. On their electric bills. Now, I, I want to ask you a question. What are the odds that if you went to Connecticut and, and just talked to people that were clearly in their late 60s or older and said, do you want to leave Connecticut? And, and every time you got a yes, 
you said, well, why do you want to leave Connecticut? And they were going to say, because I got scammed by the electric company. It'll make it more attractive for people to stay in Connecticut, even though you've done nothing to address the actual reasons. A regulatory climate and a business climate that are not conducive to small business. So we're going to worry about like seniors getting scammed by the electric company. So once again, prove that people that are administratively minded, bureaucratically minded, are incapable of comprehending that they are the problem. They just Don't understand it. Again, this is another person I'd like to interview and say, do you know that you're stupid? Because if you know you're stupid, you're not dangerous to society. But if you're stupid and you don't know that you're stupid and you have any kind of authority, you are a clear and present danger to yourself and others. And I think that, again, I'm serious when I say this. Stupid people that know they're stupid are not dangerous. They don't do important things because they know that they're stupid and they get out of the way and they do what they're capable of. It's the stupid that don't know they're stupid that are problems. Well, the other thing, well, they, they go to Florida, and they, the, the reason they're leaving is a brutal winter. Are they leaving New Hampshire? Did New Hampshire make the list? No. Hmm. I don't understand. New Hampshire's winters are more brutal than Connecticut's winters. It's colder there. You get snowed in more. It gets to lower temperatures, but they're not leaving. Well, why not? Because did the lady who said she wants to move her business that's been there for decades say, it's these winners, I just can't handle the winners anymore. Do people from Connecticut, as the report said, generally when they leave, go to a warmer climate? Sure, why wouldn't they? I mean, once the state has pissed you off to the point you're like, I'm taking my money and I'm getting the hell out of here, what? at that point you're moving anyway. What are you going to oh, move to like northern Montana? Or are you going to be like, you know, I'm getting older now and the cold hurts my bones and since I got to move anyway, why not Florida? Hey, it's cheaper to live there. They don't have a state income tax. They make it a wel welcoming environment. The economy is relatively stable and the weather's nice. Of course I'm going to move there. But see, the weather isn't the cake, morons. The weather is the icing. You know what? It's pretty damn nice in Georgia. It is. Climate-wise, the climate of Georgia and Florida is very similar. You can live on the coast in Georgia. Georgia does not have as good a business and income climate as Florida. So when we're weighing the two things together with each other, guess what? Hey, I'm going to go to Florida over Georgia because they'll take less of my money away. Not that Georgia is a really terrible state or anything, but if I'm choosing between the two and I got to leave Connecticut anyway... Right? Because why aren't they going to California? Who retires to California? California arguably has much nicer weather in reality than Florida. I just came from Florida. I love Florida. But Florida, 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 Florida is humid. It's, there's, if you are not on the coast, and by on the coast, I mean, can you look out and see the ocean? Without a bunch of things blocking the ocean breeze from your body, and you're in Florida in the summer, you are not happy. It's miserable. There's plenty of places in California people don't even use air conditioning. Now, I would use air conditioning, but I can see how they can get by without it. You will feel like you have a plastic bag on your face in Florida. So if it's the weather, why aren't they going to California? Oh, because California has high taxes, too, and a poor regulatory climate as well, and restrictive on business as well. So they're not going to Florida just because it's warmer, dolt. They're going there because it's the, the, the weather is the icing on the cake. 
Florida is attracting people in spite of their weather in some instances. Because if you just want to get out in the frigid cold of Connecticut and New England and New York, another pisshole state, you could go to, like, North Carolina or South Carolina. Lots of coastal living. It's not as affordable. The states are not as, as unintrusive as the state of Florida. Florida offers greater freedoms, less regulatory problems, and lower taxes. And then, okay, then the weather's nice, too. See, this is people that don't get it. They don't understand that they're the reason people are leaving. People are not leaving Connecticut just due to the winters. Again, that is like the anti-icing. So, like, you, you've made them like this pile of crap and called it breakfast. Like this mealy porridge, right? And then the weather is like some sour milk on top of it. Where if the porridge was good, I just would choose to not smell the milk, right? But since you've already given me crap and told me I have to eat it, the sour milk is just too much. I can't, it's, it's, it's over the top. So it's the, it's the anti-icing that the, that the weather of Florida is to the cake. So again, it's just people not getting it. it what's really interesting though, you know, also in the top five of, of, of states that people want to leave is Nevada. Now on, on gun laws, Nevada's good. Nevada is a great state for, from a Second Amendment standpoint. Um, it's not really, really cold there. It does get really hot in certain areas. There's the, what is what causes people to want to leave Nevada, though? I mean, think about this. It's an economy. And the reason the economy, and I guarantee you there's a lot of talk of people leaving Arizona, too. These are states that were hit very badly by the housing crisis, and they've rocked the economy. So what we need to understand when people start talking about leaving their state, there's 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 generally two things that drive it. One is an economic situation. I just need more money. And the other is an economic situation. I need them to take away less money. It's all about money. It's what it really comes down to. Money goes where it's treated well, in the words of Peter Schiff. So if money is being treated poorly from a fiscal management standpoint – or from a standpoint of the money being taken as theft by government, either way, the money leaves. And this is the big thing that the, the politicians still don't get. Do you notice who always wants to leave? Do you notice who always wants to leave? Uh, retiring people want to leave. Because they're at a point now where I'm not held here captively anymore. I'm going to get my retirement check wherever I go. So they're not just leaving because they're old and it's too cold for them. They're leaving because for the first time in their life, they're not tied economically through income to the state. So if you have a job in Connecticut and it's a well it's a good paying job, even though the state's taking a lot of your money, especially as you get older and you're kind of typecast and all, and finding a new job's not necessarily easy, especially if you work for your government. Well I got a government job. Well no matter what they do to me, at least I know I'm gonna get paid and I'm gonna get that retirement. You stay there because of those ties. So uh, retired people want to leave because that tie has been severed. Which means they've only been held there through this belief that it's necessary for them to be there to be employed. Even though other states have lower unemployment uh, opportunities, right? So there's a lot more job opportunities there. They even looked. But a lot of people convince themselves they can't do it. Uh, it's also because they have kids and kids are in schools and I won't uproot my kids. Your kids would be better off in freedom than tyranny, folks. Just saying. Anyway, but the other group of people that always wants to leave, these states that suck, business owners. The business owner is the one that wants to go. 
There's a lady they started with. She runs a business. Now, here's another one of my Jack Spearco predictions for the next decade. And I, I think this one, you'll see this start to happen heavily within five years. It's already happening with big companies. You see governors like Rick Perry from Texas, who, again, there's a lot of things I don't like about Rick Perry, but when he does something I approve of, I'll, I'll, I'll point it out. Going out and looking to big companies, million-dollar, multi-million-dollar companies, uh, and saying, hey, this would be a great place to have your uh, headquarters. We don't have a, a, a corporate income tax or a state income tax. We have a low cost of living and a really great population of people with a lot of skills and talents, everything from blue collar to engineering and, and white collar, you name it, we've got it here. Come on down to Texas and going out and making place for large companies that are leaving places like New York and Illinois and winning half of the business of Magpul when Magpul took operations both to Texas and Wyoming. So you've seen that. I'll tell you what's coming next. Some state somewhere is going to figure this out and say, hey, wait a minute. We're a state. We have lots of money. And we can loan money. States can loan money. They do it all the time. We call them bonds. But we don't have to loan money to uh, to people just in the form of a bond. Uh, or they, they, There's people loaning the state money. I'm sorry, right? But uh, we don't have to just borrow money. We can loan money back out. We can We can loan money. Um, we could issue loans. We, they, they do it for things like scholarships and grants and stuff like that. And some have to be paid back, some don't. It's just, you know, but states can loan money. The state of Texas can loan money. Well, if you know that or not, the state of Alabama can loan money to another state or to a person or to a business. Some state's going to figure this out and say, you know what? What if we set aside, I don't know, $50 million, which in a large state's Uh, you know, budget for the year is a rounding error. It's not a lot of money. State Texas right now has an eight billion dollar, eight billion dollar surplus, eight billion. So what if we took half a billion dollars and did this crazy idea that I'm about to give you? Because we're it's a loan; they're gonna get the money back, or maybe it's a partial grant with a loan. So it, it, it would say, hey, come apply to move to our state and establish a business. And what we want is proof that you know how to run a business. If you've been in business for more than 10 years and your business is ge geographically dependent, in other words, I would not qualify for my own program. The Survival Podcast, I can move it to Maine or Florida or Panama, which if the government pisses me off enough, someday could happen tomorrow. My, gov my business is not geographically dependent. I can go anywhere I want. But if your business is geographically dependent, in other words, to move and establish your business here would present a difficulty or to the point of you'd actually have to fold up and restart. Apply, give us a business plan, how much money you need, and we will give you a grant loan hybrid. In other words, what we'll say is you come down here to Texas and you've got this business that's ongoing, you can dissolve your inventory, you can do this, you whatever, and you're going to come here and you're going to set your business up in Texas, you're going to be in the same business, right? So you're not going to go from, uh, you know, selling eyeglasses and frames and contacts to farming pigs. Like You're going to come here and do basically the business that we know that you know, that you have a track record of being effective on, and you need $100,000 to make the move, to be able to, to make the transition, sell out your inventory, Be fair to your workers. Do severance where you can. Lure some of them on down with you. But if you had a hundred, if somebody just gave you a hundred thousand dollars right now, and and you came here, 
uh, and you could get your business back and running because your business isn't worthless where you are. You might sell it or you might sell off parts of it to fund the reestablishment, but this hundred grand would give you basically a salary for a year, whatever you need it for. We don't care. You've proven that you can run a business. What we'll do is we'll split it in half. Now, I know those of you, again, that I've pissed off already in this episode are saying, hey, Jack, that's people's money that was stolen at the point of a gun. Yeah, I know, but it's already there, right? I'm not saying I think they should do this. I'm saying this is what's going to happen. And they'll say, if you bring your business here to Texas and you hire, and it'll be like a scale, like $100,000, you have to hire at least one Texas resident that was already here before you got here. Right, a million dollars. You got to hire ten, right? One per hundred thousand dollars loan grant associate. This is what we'll do. We'll give you a low interest loan on fifty thousand dollars. Fifty thousand dollars paid back over twenty years at two and a half percent interest, and we'll grant you the other fifty thousand dollars as long as your business is established, and remains a going concern for at least five years, or something to that effect, or ten years, right? And you can sell it. As long as your business is operational, functional, and here, you, you, that money never had, it's just a grant from the government. You might see it being done as a full sale grant. The other thing you might see is deals being made with local ordinances and things like that. Uh, you come here, you set your business up, you use property for your business, you purchase that property in the name of your business, you're exempted from all property taxes for 10 years. That's already being done to large businesses. Where states are going to start figuring it out, though, is that the small business person is the engine. Instead of it just being, small businesses are the engine that drive the U.S. economy. One of these guys is going to say it one day and go, wait a minute. I know my speechwriter wrote that shit for me because voters eat that crap up, but is that true? Well, yeah, that's true. Maybe that's who we should target. Businesses that do a half a million to five million dollars a year in annual revenue, annual turnover. And bring them to this state. And they're going, it will happen. It will happen. And they can call him Perry the Poacher all he wants. They're just pissed off because it's working. Because what if somebody went to that little gal there with the grocer and all and said, hey, look, here's what we'll do. We'll help you find a place for your business. We'll give you all the demographic information you want available from our state. We'll, we'll let you know where where people that are most uh, predisposed to purchase the type of industry that you've been in live in our state. Uh, we'll help you find a, a storefront. We'll get all the shit out of the way that normally is required for you to get access to that business and be able to run a commercial operation. We'll just get that shit out of the way for you. Um, we'll give you $100,000 uh, to get your business off the ground. You won't start paying on the 50% of it that's a loan for five years. As long as your business is up and running for five years, when you start paying the 50 back, um, the other 50 is just a grant. You get to keep it. You'll have no property taxes on the building for the first 10 years. You think she might figure out how to move? Now, what's the value of her to the state of Texas? Those look, again, I want to talk about whether or not we should do this or not. I'm just talking about what's going to happen. Is that person worth more to the state of Texas than $100,000? Well, from the little video I watched that you guys didn't see, you just heard the audio, there was like four people in there working. That's four jobs. Plus her working. That's five people. And that was, I'm sure they're not all there at the same time. So what's the value of five new jobs? 
Do five new jobs only create five new jobs? Or do five new jobs create more jobs? When you have a job and you have money, what do you do with it? Well, a large portion of it gets spent. Americans save less than 5% of their annual incomes by average. So uh, this, this, this thing, they're going to make it easier for people to save money. You know how you make it easier? See, that's another thing that they're... Nobody said the problem we have is that we don't have a sufficient ways to save our money. They, the problem is we don't have the money to save because they keep taking it. This is where, again, bureaucrats cannot comprehend that the problems that they're trying to solve, they are the problem. You can, If you're a, a person in government and you want to actually fix the problem, quit. Stop. Just go away. Don't name a successor. Just Just quit. Just stop doing anything at all. Just stop taking a paycheck. Just walk away. That's how you fix the problem if you're a bureaucrat. You leave. Go away. Don't train a replacement. Just leave. Preferably go to somewhere like Yemen. Go over there and tell them how to live and see what happens. That'd be great. Okay? Um, then you're clearly not going to be our problem anymore. But that's, you can't get it. The, the, the reason is it was cold. Uh, old people get scammed by utility bills and, and they don't, they don't, they, we need an easier way for people to save for retirement. Hopefully less people will leave. God, the, 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 the idiocy. But you're going to see a large state with a strong economy and a growth economy. Somebody like Texas. And this one might, I said, you know, the GMO think Texas would not go next and they won't. Texas might do this. I would say the state's most likely to do this. Texas, either one of the Carolinas. Carolinas are not the greatest place to do business, but they're not bad. Tennessee, maybe. Tennessee. Oklahoma, maybe. Not Louisiana. People are like, like Louisiana's Got a lot of people that want to leave as well. Um, those of you who live there and love it, I understand why you do, but you probably have a stable income of some sort or whatever, or you have a very low cost of living. There's a lot of people in your state that cannot make a living, and they want to leave for economic reasons. Um, so I don't think Louisiana has the 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 uh, the horsepower to get it done. Missouri, someone in Missouri's not really that big of an economy. Um, a state like Texas has a lot of money to do this with and a lot of incentive to do this. I'd say Texas is your, your number one most likely state to do something like this. Again, I'm not saying we should. I'm talking about law of probability here. That there'll be more and more programs designed to court the small business person just like the lady you heard. Say, tell us what your pain is. What, what, what is your, because the only thing they can't solve with money is, well, my kids live here and my uncle lives here and my aunt lives here and my, my mom is getting older and someone has to take care of her and things like that. But, you know, the hope would be, well, bring them all with you. At least the ones that will come. Bring them on down. Look, look, you know, they're functional members of society that are producing something and usually entrepreneurs are surrounded by other people that are productive. Come on down. Um, I'm, I'm going to go out on a limb and say it'll be Texas. Not just it'll happen within five years that it will be Texas. As I start going through the states in my mind with enough economic horsepower to do it and enough of a positive business climate to drive 
the influx and the staying power to maintain a program like that and enough room for the growth. Texas just starts going up the list and ends up taking a distance between it and anybody who's second. The, 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 the hard question actually would be is who would be the second most likely state to do it? I think there's a lot of contenders in there, but I don't think anyone has the potential to do this that Texas does. And I do think Texas will roll out within the next five years a major program along the lines of a loan or forgivable loan or grant loan hybrid or grant to incentivize businesses to move to Texas, specifically small businesses between a half a million dollars and five million dollars in revenue, um, and specifically based on proven track record. So you will have to be able to show that you can run a business. Because here's the truth. If you can build, operate, run, and maintain a profitable business in Connecticut, then doing it in Texas is like somebody gave you a better car and told you to drive faster. It's not hard. It's really not. Now, you do have them you know, losing a customer base and having to rebuild, but uh, for those of you thinking about this, I see new businesses open successfully in this state all the time. And most of them I see around another year or two later, they're still here. So if, if, if you're not just taking a shot at it, but you've actually done it, there's probably not a better place economically in the state of Texas. I'm not going to say we're the freest state in the union. I wish we were. We are not. We have our problems. But economically, we're a good place to be. And the last thing I'm going to cover today is just more proof of everything that I've just said. Uh, hold tight for the audio, and I'll be back to wrap up today's episode. It comes with sad news that we uh, found out that Toyota Motors is moving their complete operation to Texas, and that that operation will be moving by the end of 2017. That will include upwards to 4,000 people that are here in Torrance. They've already spent a lot of money to locate in Texas. They've already bought properties, and they're going to consolidate all these things from all over the United States. It's just not from Torrance. It's going to be from all these other places also. The city of Torrance will aggressively try to remarket that property and get another major manufacturer or company in there. We look forward to working with Toyota, making the transition a, a good transition for them, and also we're looking forward to any other business that would like to come to the city of Torrance. Torrance has been known for a business-friendly city for years. We hope that everybody understands that Torrance has done everything we can to keep them here, and we hope that we could re-attract another company like that. Toyota has done a number of things in the city, and uh, it, the fact that they're leaving and taking a lot of citizens and residents possibly to Texas, we're very disappointed with that because a lot of those people are part of our families. All right, so you would expect me to just come back and gloat and say, see, we're, they're getting Toyota to come to Texas. Um, a little bit. Uh, I, I feel that uh, a little bit. Um, but there's... There's more to it um, than, than, than meets the eye, I think, on the surface. Yes, California is a crappy place to do business. Yes, there's a financial incentive for this. But it's about more than money, at least so says one article. And uh, I feel like playing more uh, audio for you guys today. So this is from the Courier Journal. Uh, I'll put a link to where you can find this video and, and more of the story. But I'm going to play this for you, and, and then I'll come back and wrap up for the day. 
Toyota is packing up shop and heading south. The auto company announced Monday it's moving most of its North American operations to Texas. The move will consolidate about 4,000 sales, finance, and engineering jobs from Toyota headquarters in California, Kentucky, and New York to an as-yet-unbuilt campus in Plano. The company's North American CEO, Jim Lentz, called the move, quote, the most significant change we've made to our North American operations in the past 50 years. The shift, which is expected to take about three years, places Toyota's administrative staff closer to their manufacturing plant in Texas. The company has offered relocation packages to any employee who wants to move with the company. The announcement is a big win for Texas Governor Rick Perry, whose Texas Enterprise Fund offered Toyota $40 million to pull up stakes. Perry's office credited the move to Texas's employer-friendly combination of low taxes, fair courts, smart regulations, and world-class workforce. By contrast, the city of Torrance, California, is expected to be hit the hardest by the move, losing about 3,000 jobs in the process. Torrance's mayor told reporters they'd done everything to keep Toyota, but couldn't compete with Texas's offer. And as Fox Business points out, it's not hard to see why Toyota likely found Texas far more attractive than California. You got tons of taxes, tons of regulations. Why wouldn't you move? Mm. Cost of living, cost of business, all cheaper. I mean, it just makes economic sense. California's Republican gubernatorial hopeful Neil Cascari used Toyota's announcement to slam the state's Democratic governor, Jerry Brown calling it the latest consequence of Governor Brown's continued failure to support California job creators. And KCAL reports Brown hit back Monday, obliquely referring to businesses moving out of state in an event in Lancaster. We have lots of little burdens and regulations and taxes, but smart people figure out how to make it. And um, as I always say, you get what you pay for. Toyota expects to start construction on its new campus this fall. For News Zach Toombs. Okay, so I've got a link to the article that goes along with that video, and the article gives out some additional information that I want you to know. Number one, in in the past, this has happened before, in 2008, Nissan moved its U.S. headquarters from California to Nashville, Tennessee. Now, that is so that that's another example of California losing jobs and business to a large company. Um, but 68% of the workers in California refused to leave. Nissan said, yeah, we'll give you relocation systems. Come on up to Tennessee. And a lot of Californians said, no, man, they don't have enough tofu out there or whatever, and we want to stay here in California. Now, 2008, that was as the crisis was beginning, the financial crisis. A lot of people thought it would be short-lived. Actually, when, when Nissan made the initial move, we weren't all the way into it yet. This was earlier in the year, 2008. So people had less incentive to leave financially. Like, they figured, I'll just get another job. Right, maybe a Toyota, I don't know. But what this says is Toyota knows the number, 68% refused to leave, and they say that the figures on getting new engineering, marketing, and other talent from Texas universities in its tech and aerospace industry. In other words, what, what, what Toyota says is, well, there's probably a good section of key employees that will refuse to leave California for whatever reason and come to Texas because they're scared of guns or something like that. Who knows why? But... There's so much talent in Texas, we don't care. We'll just replace them. That's important. Now, there's also something that's going on that's not said in the article. And it's about innovation um, and about um, Toyota's loss of market share. Listen to this. Nationwide, Toyota market share has dropped almost four percentage points from 178 in 2009 um, each market share point is worth about 160,000 vehicles. So you're looking at 
700-odd thousand vehicles not being made anymore. That's a lot of jobs. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of everything for a manufacturer to lose out to other people. When Toyota announced the move to Texas last week, some Internet wits joked the Japanese automaker would finally discover America. That's a stretch. Toyota has been selling cars in the U.S. for almost 60 years, and it has factories all over the country. But it's true that freeways in Texas look a lot more like the rest of America than California freeways do. In Texas and the country as a whole, Ford's F-Series and Chevy Silverado pickup trucks were the best-selling vehicles last year. Chrysler's Ram pickup wasn't far behind. The Toyota Camry and Nissan Altima were the only two cars among the top five in Texas last year. In other words, we like our trucks in Texas. Toyota sold 14% of the 1.4 million vehicles that moved off dealer lots in Texas. We actually like Toyota here quite a bit, honestly. According to IHS, General Motors has the highest share in Texas, about 20%. Wheaton says Toyota has been stymied by mundane designs and lackluster marketing for the last decade. Since many workers won't relocate, the company will get an influx of talent and new thinking. I think it's saying, okay, we need a fresh start. Let's have some new ideas. When Nissan changed its U.S. headquarters from California and National in 2008, 68% of workers refused to move. Toyota knows that number. Wheaton says and figures on getting new engineering, marketing, and other talent from Texas universities, its tech and aerospace industries. Nissan changed after the move. Its top-selling car, the mid-size Altima, got a bold new design and crisper handling. It's one of the vehicles that's eating Toyota's lunch, Wheaton says. The Altima share of the mid-size market rose by a half a point to 8.9% according to auto data, where the Camrys remain at 11.3%. Okay, so here's the deal. What Toyota is actually saying is it's a better business climate, it costs less money, there's an abundance of talent there, and we are not keeping up with the industry. We're moving for more than just walking to freedom reasons. So Texas gave them money. So, see, this is why I say Texas is most likely to come out with this program for small businesses. The Enterprise Fund already exists, but it's for larger-scale businesses. It's it's only a matter of time till they say, you know, we got all this money in the Enterprise Fund. Let's bring some of the Ma and Pa guys. But this is big news, folks. This is news that politicians don't ever like to talk about because in the end, they always end up being the problem. Now, the guy running for Republican governor in, in California wants to put down the current Democrat governor says, see, look what he did. But do you think if that guy takes over that companies are going to magically stop leaving California? And how about this moronic governor that they have right now who says, what? Well, there's... There's a, there's a, there's some taxes and hurdles and stuff to be in California. But if you're smart enough, you figure it out and you, you get what you pay for. How incompetent. How incompetent. If you're smart, you figure it out. In other words, that means the people that run Toyota are idiots. They're morons. They don't, you know what? You don't deserve their business. You don't deserve their money. You don't deserve them. I'm glad they're coming here. And I'm glad Nissan went to Tennessee, even though it doesn't directly benefit me in any way. I'm just glad to see people leave California. It's just a terrible business climate. And as I watch states destroy their own local economies and overtax their citizenry and promise utopia at the tit of the government you know, pig trough, and I watch them fail time and time again, it gives me hope. The people of this country will one day wake up and realize there is no utopia. There's no utopia. There's no perfect society. 
There's simply the possibility of a society where those that work the hardest, do the most, and succeed the most are granted the fruits of their labor and not having it taken from them in the name of some stupid crap like social justice. Where those that work and succeed do well and those who refuse to do poorly. And that's seen as logical, common sense, and reason, and not as a problem. See, the biggest reason these, these, these bureaucrats and these politicians create these problems is they think it's actually bad that some people don't do very much and get very little. See, I think that's a natural consequence. It's how every other uh, entity on this planet works. Those that do the most get the greatest rewards. There's nothing wrong with that. And taking from the producer to give to the consumer at the point of a gun certainly isn't justice and sure as hell ain't social justice. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way Nobody up there cares.